This is the TechEU Podcast, where we discuss some of the most interesting stories from the European tech scene. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasting fix these days. Well, all right, all right, all right, you have found it. This is the TechEU Podcast. I am your host, Dan Taylor. And we are the droids you're looking for. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode God Only Knows. What is it? 290,000 or so of the TechEU podcast. It's a bit of a cloudy, rainy, beautiful day here in London, as always. I guess, I guess cloudy and rainy for many reasons. But today, I want to talk about a product, a service, that I myself have actually never used. And this is a company that was founded in 2018... It was beta tested over the course of 2019 and formally emerged from stealth in September of 2020. UK headquartered Zilch might have been a bit late to the buy now, pay later game, but rather than being just another player in the market that typically partners with retailers, Zilch flipped the model on its head and instead partnered with consumers, offering both a buy now, pay later option and a pay now option, two options that gives customers 2% back in Zilch rewards that can be used towards future purchases. Having partnered with MasterCard, this direct-to-consumer approach has allowed the company to scale at blazingly fast speed, outpacing, well, this little company called Klar- Karma? Klarna? Klar- Klar- something like that. They're in Swi- Swi- Switzerland? I think they're based in Switzerland. That's right, yeah. For example, and uh, yeah, when they closed their Series C round at 110 million in November of 2021, Zilch went on record as Europe's fastest ever tech company to reach double unicorn status at a $2 billion valuation. Zilch is backed by Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Gauss Ventures, DMG Ventures, Ventura Capital, M&F Fund, Money Supermarket Group, and Seek Ventures founder Simon Nixon. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm joined by Zilch's CEO and co-founder, Philip Bellamont. Dan, really good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining me. Did I, how did I do with the intro? Was that, I mean, are we done? I, I covered it all, right? It was bang on. Really good, I have to say. Um, the, the Series C that you mentioned um, that we raised in November, we extended recently this year. And so it brings it to $160 million. Um, which is just worth noting, I think, particularly right. given everything going on in the world and, and, and you know, valuations and where things are at uh, during 2022 compared to 2021. Right. Well, let's uh, walk me back in time a little bit here. Philip, in 2007, you came out of university and you walked right into a financial crisis, which arguably gave birth to the fintech industry as we know it today. But I'm guessing that most people don't know you might possibly be the most successful failed mobile games developer ever. Can you can you talk us through talk us through how the founding of P-Bell led to Zilch? Yeah, I, I love the way you put that. <laughs> but it's actually yeah, that's very true. So, when I was at University of Johannesburg in South Africa and I was doing um biometrics and artificial intelligence with mobile uh, mobile development that was what I was studying and and during the course basically we were, we had the opportunity to build a project you have to do your final thesis which is a project with a team and we were looking at doing um, you know something in the gaming space but we realized that actually the university ends up owning the IP 
So what we decided to do is pivot away from that and do a, a biometric security system, which, uh, you know, which, which went on to actually win the prize. It was fantastic. And at the end, you get to commercialize uh, this opportunity and you actually split the ownership with the, the university. And so, you know, biometrics wasn't really actually what I was very passionate about. So we decided not to go and commercialize that and to rather go and start a mobile gaming company, um, which was always the aspiration. And there was a couple of, of friends of mine at university. We had worked together on this. And, you know, I'd, I'd said to them, we're going to go and make games and it's going to be the next Xbox type PlayStation thing, <laughs> except we're doing this on phones, right? And this was still mm. when it was uh, kind of Samsung D600, uh, mm. you know, Blackberry. High-tech stuff. Oh, no, yeah, mm. this was like, you know, this was a snake on steroids is what we were going to be creating. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I said, do you want to come and join me? This is what we're doing. And, you know, they were also very keen on gaming. And so off we went and we started this gaming company. And the whole idea was that it would be social gaming. So this is not gambling or, or sports betting. This is social gaming where basically you could play our mobile games against friends or others using data which obviously, again, at the time was uh, quite expensive and people normally did consume a lot of data on their phones for that reason. And so we had to try and figure out how we were going to let you play peer-to-peer -peer games and compete against one another and, of course, then build the games. And, mm -hmm. so, and so we started doing that. And, and the whole concept was that you could use prepaid airtime. So, you know, in a lot of emerging markets, no one had contracts. Everyone had prepaid airtime. And people could use that to then buy objects in the game or they could use this to transfer it to one another so others could play the games or into competitions. And ultimately what we found is there was a, a lot of transfers of this airtime going on, but you know, no one was buying any objects in the games and actually not many, many people were playing the games. And so, and so we sort of, we, we were quite disappointed in that obviously, but what we look, when we started to look at it, we said, well, what if we started to really just focus on this peer-to-peer -peer value transfer system that seems to be going on? And we can rather focus on building a payments business. Um, and obviously, it wasn't as articulate as that at the time. It was a bit like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, no one wants to play our crappy games. We're a bit upset about it. Um, and so we just started to focus more and more on this feature. And so we started lending airtime. People would pay it back. We started to lend electricity. And all of these services really became very popular. Um, and that's really, you know, drew our focus. And that's how I, I really stumbled into mobile payments, uh, ultimately working with MasterCard, you know, the World Food Program, and, and, and we operate in about 27 African countries. And so, and so that became a, you know, big success for us. But unfortunately, the, the, the friends I uh, invited to join me on this journey to build games were a little disappointed that now they were worrying about interacting interacting with MasterCard and worrying about PAN, CVVs and expiries rather than, you know, creating the next best character uh, for an equivalent Mortal Kombat type of, uh, type, type of game. So that's just how it goes, you know? That might be a bit akin to, uh, I can't even remember his name. Nobody remembers his name. The, the Beatles had a drummer before Ringo. And he decided to leave the band before the before things took off. So so to those friends who went off and built Mortal Kombat, uh, ha ha. So listen, Philip, <laughs> in uh, 2015, you relocated to London where you were heading up operations for Net One, which eventually uh, acquired P-Bell, right? Somewhere along the line. Yeah, he's, he's nodding his head at me, right? I mean, this looks like a pretty solid corporate career trajectory. 
What caught your eye about returning to the startup world? And given your experiences in the financial sector, what was it about buy now, pay later specifically? Yeah, I mean, Dan, what really happened here? The the story is actually, it seems complex, um, but it's quite simple. So basically, when I started the mobile gaming, which became a mobile payments company, in fact, my father was running a business, which was a mag stripe cards business. And, and they didn't have any mobile technology. I remember sitting, we were having dinner one night, and I've always worked very closely with my father, um, you know, from when I was, I was young. You know, most people, kids were playing games. My father and I were, were coding games in Turbo Pascal on the weekends together. So, you know, we, we were sitting and chatting, and, and I was saying to him, I think that the future is what we're doing here. It's, it's on mobile. And at the time, there was no mobile applications because there were no stores of any kind, right? You, you had to put SDKs somewhere on a website and people had to download and trust that they could use them. So, so you know, you had a lot of Mobi sites, we, uh, mobile websites. And, you know, the domains you used typically were .mobi. It was all the rage back then. And um, I remember chatting to my father about it and, and you know, saying, this is going to be the future. And he, I was like, it's .mobi. And he sort of said to me, what does that mean? Is that like Moby Dick? I've, I've never heard of this. <laughs> And so, you know, they were a big business in the Magstripes card game. They didn't have any mobile tech. And it was the opposite for us. We didn't do any physical cards, but we only had mobile tech. And so actually, we, we merged that my business into, into his. And so that's what happened there. We actually, right. you know, we did a reverse into that. And that business was listed on the NASDAQ and reverse listed on the JSE. And so we had a lot of fun together then in that business. Um, and, and over time... The aspiration was that we would move from emerging markets, which was our sweet spot then as a business. We had about 3,500 sure. staff. Um, and, and we wanted to really move into more developed markets. And there was, there was two reasons for this. The first was that we felt the lessons we had learned and the technology we had built in emerging markets, um, we believed we could apply to developed markets. And, you know, you really do have to be very inventive in emerging markets because in basic infrastructure, in a lot of cases, just doesn't exist. So you have to come up with something to circumvent that and to solve that problem. And, and what's often the case is that if you find something really interesting, you can actually apply it in a developed market and typically use that to, you know, um, to leapfrog or bypass infrastructure that's been built by some large incumbent. At least that that's what we believe. And so our view was as I mentioned, twofold. This was the first. The second was that, you know, we were a largely RAND earning business reporting in US dollars listed on the NASDAQ. And so it was really hard to move the valuation of the business. It was just really tough to build value for shareholders, uh, mostly because, you know, you just faced currency risk, you, you, you faced political risk. And so, you know, the whole idea was how do we move using this technology into more developed markets? And the plan really was to move into Europe and, and the UK. And that's what we wanted to do, fundamentally disagreeing with, at the time, then the board, uh, because really the board felt strongly that um, the business is an emerging markets company and, and really should double down and focus on this. And so, well, you could do that then, and that's fine, but that's not what I want to do. Um, and at the time, my father also was at the age where he was retiring. Um, and so, you know. So really, it was an obvious move to say, wish, wish you all the best, but um, this is not really the trajectory that I would like to see for the company and the group. And, and so, you know, I think I can go and do it better outside of the structure. 
and so that's really uh, what what was the decision and so no corporate life so far uh, yet <laughs> really all startup um, and and so that's what happened and so basically moved over to the UK and was surprised to see that some of the challenges we face in emerging markets is much the same actually here and hmm. the US and that is that you know, really a big bulk of people still suffer from a lack of access to, to what you would imagine should be accessible to everyone, like, for instance, very cheap or free credit. And, right. um, and that's not true, in fact. And so that, that's really where the genesis was and what sparked the idea to say, look at what's happening with credit here in the UK and obviously the US. And, you know, can we do something about that? Similarly to what we did in 20 other African countries, how can we go and fundamentally disrupt this model and allow consumers to be included, ultimately financially included in, in, you know, in what we do in the product that we roll out. And that was where we began with the thinking of Zilch. Um, and so, so ultimately where the name comes from is we, we took a look at the credit market. You know, there's about a trillion dollars of debt sitting on credit cards across the US and the UK, um, which is pretty phenomenal. We've managed to accumulate that since the 1950s. And, and that's costing customers is about $140 billion plus per year in fees and interest that we pay in credit card companies, if you can believe it. Philip, we've all read and seen the news recently of some, well, in some cases, quite significant down rounds in the buy now, pay later space. Can you walk me through Zilch's model and how you've been able to forge ahead in these rough seas? So, you know, really, you mentioned a bunch of these buy now, pay later companies earlier on in the intro. Um, and all of these businesses really are point of sale finance companies. They they buttons that sit on the checkout page. At least that's their core business model. And and fundamentally, there's a number of problems with that model um, that we identified early on, which is why we didn't go this route. And 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 by the way, every business has problems, and I'm not saying we don't have our own problems. So this is not to say they're bad businesses. It's just not a business we want to be in. Um, and the problem that we find with these models is that. You've basically got an oversupply of these providers. There's just a lot of them now. And they all undercut each other to win the deals with the big merchants. And that's what's going on. And so where, for instance, they may have been able to charge 5% per sale a few years back. Today, you know, they're lucky if they're charging 1.8 to 2.5%. So revenues come down. And then at the same point in time, they've also negotiated SLAs where they're promising to lend to X many people that click the button on a checkout page. Because obviously a retailer is like, hey, I want conversions, right? And the retailer in this case is in fact their customer. And so you'll find these companies have gone and said they will lend to 70% of every customer. They call this an approval ratio. Um, and they sign this deal for you know four years the problem is that that four-year deal doesn't contemplate the macroeconomic environment and it doesn't think about affordability. It's a dumb piece of paper. And so the problem is, of course, affordability is changing for a lot of people right now. Bad debts are climbing. Revenue has come way down for these providers. And so the unit economics have tipped upside down. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these big businesses, the names that we, we talk about quite a bit, um, uh, are, are losing so much money. And, and unfortunately, the bigger they get, the more money they lose. And so these are some of the reasons we don't like this model. But, but the largest reason is that there's a complete misalignment of interest between the provider and the end consumer of the service. And what I mean by that is 
the provider is promising the retailer they will lend, they're promising them a low uh, revenue rate, and that doesn't contemplate anything about what the end consumer actually wants or needs. And so that's why the regulators, both the CFPB and, of course, the FCA, have stepped in to start really looking at this. And so yeah. with Zilch, what we're doing is we really feel like we're trying to Googleize payments, if I could use any, any such term. And what I mean by that is Zilch really exists at the intersection of payments, lending, and advertising. And so really what we're doing is we're charging brands to bring our customers to their stores, whether that's online or in-store, by the way, both. And we're charging brands to bring our customers there with the purchasing power our brands have. And that's, and that's afforded to our customers by virtue of the fact we're on, on board the customer directly. We know who you are. We take a look at your credit not just your credit score. And we empower you with an appropriate amount of money to buy what you want and when you want it anyway. And we bring customers to these stores and that converts really well for those brands. And so brands are paying us advertising dollars to actually have customers go and spend at their stores. And we're taking those advertising dollars and amortizing the cost of credit to our customers or the cost of rewards, deals and discounts to our customers. So what that means is we're a payments business that's got a significantly thicker margin and therefore are able to give our customers more cash back than even, for instance, Chase could afford to give customers. <laughs> or we're giving you credit over a period of time for free that others could never afford to do because they just couldn't cover the cost with interchange. So, and so that's really the intersection where Zilch lies. And so you think about what Google did for search. They gave us a really interesting product that we use daily. It's useful to us all daily, whether it's maps or search, and that's great. We use it habitually. And then they layer on top of that the ability for a buyer to meet a seller, and it's quite convenient, right? Mm -hmm. And social did the same. We're chatting with friends or sharing photos, whatever we're doing. Uh, we're scrolling through a bunch of you know, uh, videos, whatever it might be. And we use it habitually, it's useful and it's interesting. And on top of that, buyers again can meet sellers and that's quite convenient a lot of the time for us. But no one's really ever done this in payments, if you think about it. Mm. And that's actually quite bizarre because at the heart of all commerce is payment. Sure, right. And so, and so that's really what we're trying to achieve here and why we think we've had the success to date. But most importantly, why of course, uh, why today we are, net transaction margin positive. We, are, we have gross profitability across our product suite as a fintech today. And I know that sounds that like business 101. <laughs> You're like, yeah, isn't that how a company works? But you'll be shocked <laughs> to know that, in fact, most companies do not uh, have profitability at a product level, at a net transaction margin level. In fact, they are a, a negative unit economics. So, so this is what we've managed to achieve. And so really how we think about it is we're building um, an ad subsidized payments network. That's really how we think about this. Uh, you know, another way, if I go back to my poor gaming day, the days, you would sort of say this is a freemium payments model, you know, something like that. But basically, <laughs> this is what we, this is what we've gone and built. And so, so just to set the scene, that's really what we've built. That's why we've managed to go from zero to two point six million customers, you know, in in just under two years, which is pretty phenomenal to see. That's about six seven percent of the adult population in the UK. Um, mm. and, and obviously, we have big aspirations for the U.S. You've mentioned 
the U.S. market a number of times, and, and I know we're not doing video, but I am looking at you, and that is a remarkably nice tan you have going on there. Uh, you've got the uh, office that's opened up in Miami. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure you're enjoying that. I know you were traveling last week. Talk to me about the, uh, the U.S. plans. I mean, obviously, you, you've dominated the U.K. market, going from zero to hero in record time. Are there key ingredients that are translating well to the U.S. market? Are there different localization issues? How, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing when, when launching in the U.S.? I mean, look, you know, uh, the U.S. is a very complex place. Um, <laughs> Tell me and, about it. And I think, <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we're obviously discovering more and more of that as we go. You know, in the U, U.K., we, we have a solid position here. We, we obviously are a licensed company here in the U.K. We have a consumer credit license. Some of the big names that people talk about, everyone's quite surprised to hear that they, in fact, are not even licensed or regulated here in the U.K., and, of course, the regulator has now said they'll be regulating. They've recently sent a letter out to all CEOs to warn them that, in fact, you must comply with some regulation and Kong 3. And if you do not, in fact, you could be fined or sent to jail. And so what we found, of course, is that uh, Google AdWords bidding prices have dropped since then um, because we're one of the only advertisers in the UK today. We're one of the only companies today, in fact, that's licensed and are able to advertise our service. And so, you know, we feel we're in a fortunate position here in the UK. And anecdotally, just interestingly, you know, investors have called us up a lot of times and said to us, wow, I can't believe that you guys, you know, had the business strategic thinking to, to go and get a license. <laughs> How did you know that the, the regulator will regulate? And they're very disappointed always to hear the answer when I tell them that we really had no clue. Um, <laughs> we went and you know, we went and got the license because we're offering a credit product to a consumer and they should benefit from the protections that a licensed entity can afford them. And that is the only reason we did it. And, yeah. and you know, we always say to everyone in the company, it's not, you know, it's not what you do when everyone's watching. It's what you do when no one's looking. That counts. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is a good example of that. Um, and, and, and truly, it was not a business strategy. This is something we did to protect our customers. And, and fortunately, it has worked in our favor. So, so that's where we are in the U UK. But then looking at the US, CFPB is looking at this the same way. We have a Californian lending license. Um, you know, we've done a deal with Cross River. So we've got a federal um, operation as well. And so we actually operate at a federal level. Uh, we don't have to be concerned state for state. Of course, California is always an interesting one. And so we've got our license there anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really are buttoned down in terms of regulation. But when it comes to product market fit, you know, we do see a bit of nuance definitely in how we can offer what we do to the U.S. versus the U.K. And fundamentally, we just think that's because uh, credit has been significantly more pervasive in the U.S. for much longer than it has in the U.K. Um, and so what you find is, is that there is a broader range of, of, of affordability that has been issued credit products in the U.S. than, for instance, would have been issued in the U.K. Someone who's currently excluded from a formal credit product in the U.K., you know, may actually be slightly higher on the affordability scale than, for instance, people who are completely excluded from credit in the U.S. today. Right. And so what that means is you really have to be quite nuanced and careful about how you go about rolling a product out and avoiding the adverse selection problem that, that is inherent in, in credit products. And so, and so that's really um, how we think about the entry to the U.S. 
we've been there now for about four months, you know, 155,000 odd customers. And this is all part of our live beta testing, very similar to, to the beta you mentioned earlier for the UK. And in this period, we basically iterate our credit policy and we roll through our fraud policies to make sure we're in a position of net transaction margin uh, positivity uh, before we obviously move forward and start to scale. And so that's where we're busy with, that's what we're busy with, sorry, right now in the US and, and excited about moving forward there. Crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's. One burning question, though, I have to ask, Philip, and, and I'm sure I'm not alone. The vast majority of European companies that, that kick off operations in the US, Delaware is a popular one. I don't want to say it's a tax haven, but it's a tax haven. <laughs> Miami, Miami yeah. is quickly becoming the crypto capital of the US. Why Miami? Is crypto a, a play on Zilch's roadmap? Um, well, I have to say, maybe let's talk about Miami first <laughs> before we talk about crypto. Give me the answer, so, fellas. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, the reality is we were, we were having a look at the US and saying, where is it that we set up shop? Um, knowing very well that our HQ is in London, definitely want to look at East Coast. So, uh, you know, in our previous business, as I, as I mentioned before, we, we did have offices in San Francisco and we did find the time zone difficult to manage. And so we said, look, let's set up East Coast. Uh, we want to make sure we're close enough that, you know, it takes us six and a half hours to get there. It's very close by, time zone works decently, et cetera. But at the same time, we wanted to, to speak to a few people and just see, frankly, who would accommodate us and welcome us with open arms. Florida is a great place to be from a tax point of view, there's no doubt, um, you know, so that's for sure. But the mayor of Miami, uh, really welcomed us, you know, jumped on a Zoom call with his team, explained to us why he thinks it could be a good idea for us to set up there, um, you know, what we might benefit from if we do so. And and obviously, we feel, felt that there's a lot of momentum moving into Miami and a, and a lot of our advisors or people around the board, in fact, some of our board members who typically have been diehard New Yorkers, you know, we're all packing up and moving to Miami. So So we sort of looked at it and just said, we really like the momentum. We like the feel. It's the same energy of Zilch. You know, the energy we have in the office is electric. People always come in and, and we sort of say to them, it's, you know, they go, oh, we love it. You know, what's going on over here? And it's a bit like confidence. You can't, you can't touch it, but you know when someone has it. And, and we felt Miami had that same sort of feel and, and that just suited us really nicely. Um, the other thing we love is the cultural diversity of Miami. You know, I think it's really important for us. We've made sure of this. And that's why we set up in London in the first place. We're really building a maspirational product. This is not a, you know, elite for the top 2% type offering. This is, we're building, you know, really the Amex for the mass market. That's what we believe we are offering people here. Um, and that's the arbitrage we see. How can we give um, rewards, deals, discounts, and credit for the, at a price point that's typically reserved for the elite few uh, to everybody? Um, and so we, we want to bake that into the product and our thinking and our team and how we go about things. And we think Miami does a really good job of that as well. So, so that was the reason, the fundamental reason for setting up. Of course, it certainly helped that of the three or four candidates we, you know, we interviewed over many months, the CEO that we chose to help us drive and run uh, the U.S. business uh, had just himself moved from the West Coast to Miami as well. And so... You know, we thought this would be a great place for us to set up shop. He's there in the office every day driving the team. It's everything that you'd want to see from effectively a startup within a scale-up. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's really why we set up shop. 
uh, in Miami, and, and we were very pleased to have done so. We've seen some phenomenal talent. And by the way, I will say the talent pool is growing tremendously. Actually, quarter on quarter, you can see a, a, a huge difference. Uh, probably even six, nine months ago, developers, for instance, in Miami were hard to come by. That's changed already. So there's, there's a lot changing there uh, right now, which we're excited about. Um, so I hope that answers the question, but let's move to uh, uh, one of our favorite topics, uh, crypto. Right. Crypto. Uh, uh, so, so, so largely with Zilch, really the aspiration is to allow customers to do what they want to do. That's really the aspiration. And so, you know, we don't want to impose on our customers what they should or shouldn't do. What we want to, what we would like to do, is enable them to do whatever it is that they need to do at the time they need to do it. And and that's how we see things. So today, you can use Zilch to pay in one, as you mentioned, and get cashbacks, rewards, deals, discounts. Or you can pay over time. In this case, it's four installments um, for free. And and that's a great start. But of course, we've got lots more coming, right? Paying six, paying three months and, and a bunch of other timelines. Um, and today you can use fiat currency to pay for this or you can use your Zilch rewards to pay for this. But there's no reason that you couldn't use other store values. And, you know, that could be crypto. That could be, you know, fractional ownership of other assets, as an example, um, we, we just really don't see why we would restrict a customer. So as long as we can integrate to a platform and in real time, basically debit and credit appropriately that platform to fund a transaction through Zilch, then we feel we should offer that to our customers and they, they could certainly link and do that. And so, and so we're working on that right now. We think that um, you know, there's a lot of value to customers being able to do so. Plus, of course, we are looking at how else people can leverage crypto, whether that's staking for yield, et cetera. But, I, I, you know, again, markets move, things change. And, of course, there's a lot of other places these days to find yield, uh, perhaps with less volatility. So, so we're always thinking about it. Ultimately, we want to give customers the option. And, and with Zilch, this is what we always do. Here's an option for you. This is what we recommend, um, you know, and take a decision. But ultimately, uh, let's unlock some more value for you. So that's the way we see things today uh, and think about how people use our product and we'll use it moving forward. Ultimately, the other thing we do find is that, um, you know, <laughs> Zilch exists today very much in, a, in, in you know, e-commerce and at the same time uh, in store. But, you know, we really are excited about the whole metaverse play or, or virtual shopping play or virtual commerce. And again, where is it going to end up? How does it play out? We actually really don't know. I don't think anyone does. What platforms will win, we don't know. But uh, what we do know is that Zilch will be there and available for customers to make use of, whether that's paying over time for a, an NFT. Um, and if you are unable to repay, we can partially or fully claim back ownership of that NFT digitally. That's quite interesting. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things going on there. But, but largely, we like to always be trying to think about where our customer is going next. We don't really care what's being built next, but where's our customer going to go next? And mm -hmm. how can we be right alongside them? Ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, Philip Bellamont is one of the most media prepared people I have ever interviewed. <laughs> to summarize that answer, I'm going to go with, yes, Zilch is looking into crypto. Philip, we are running super long. You are a super interesting guy. I feel like we could talk for about another half an hour, but I'm going to let you get back to work, but not before we do the lightning round. It is a staple of the show. Normally, I put it at the middle of the show. Today, we're going to do it at the very end, so we're going to take it out. Philip, the lightning round is a series of questions. I'm just going to ask you. We're going to get to know you, Philip, as a person and not you, Philip, as a business. 
Philip Bellamont, CEO and co-founder of Zilch. Are you ready? I hope so. I hope so, too. All right, here we go. First question on the TechEU lightning round. Window or aisle? Window. What is the best sandwich? Cheese, ham, and tomato. <laughs> what is the one thing you own that you should really throw out? A drone. What is the scariest animal? A mosquito. Star Wars or Harry Potter? Neither. And the last question on the lightning round with Philip Bellamont, Baburti, yes or no? Absolutely. <laughs> Philip, fill us in real quick. What is Baburti for those that don't know? <laughs> it's more of a traditional dish. And I, I suggest people go and check it out. Really interesting. Try and make it at home. I love it. I have made it once for a friend. It has uh, basically heart attack written all over it. But yeah. boy, is it is it delicious. Is it delicious? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We are out of time. I'm going to let Philip get back to work. My name is Dan Taylor. Yours is not. This has been the TechEU podcast with CEO and co-founder of Zilch, Philip Bellamont. I am out of here. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, follow us today wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please send them to podcast at tech.eu and they will most certainly be ignored. <laughs>